Uh, so as I said at the beginning of the night tonight, thank you all for tuning in. Um, it means a lot to, I think, all of us here that we can kind of pivot on a dime like we have. So thank you. Um, we have a lot to get to tonight. <laughs> as I said last week, it's hard to overstate or properly encapsulate how influential the story of the Exodus is uh, in all aspects of ancient Israel's culture um, and the Judeo-Christian tradition since. It is a massively significant defining story for Israel's identity. Exodus is very much about, uh, is the story about humanity colliding with divinity. It's a story about a God who is very active and responsive in the world. Uh, a story about a God who keeps their promises and a God who saves through recreating. And as important as the story was in the ancient Near East, uh, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> it's a masterpiece that still has something to say to us today. So we're spending just uh, the next several weeks delving into this strange and beautiful and, and terrifying and inspiring book. If you missed last week, I highly recommend you going back and listening as all of this stuff is going to build on itself. This week, uh, we get to the famous burning bush story. Um, through it, we're going to talk about those pivotal moments in our lives when, when it seems like everything in our life kind of comes together and collides. Our strength our inadequacies all bump into each other as we face pivotal moments of decision. And what I hope that we all hear tonight is God reminding us that you can do this, that I am with you and that I will be with you. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, I owe you the ending of chapter two that I wasn't able to get to last week, which actually kind of works out because the end of chapter two ties really nicely into what we're talking about tonight. But we have just as much, if not more, to talk about tonight, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, we, when we left off last week, we saw Moses being taken into Pharaoh, uh, being adopted basically by Pharaoh's daughter after she finds him floating on the Nile. Things fast forward from there, and the next scene we have, Moses is all grown up. So we're going to be starting in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm just going to kind of read through, like I did last week, sections at a time, and then we'll talk about them. So chapter two, starting in verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ra'u'el, their father, that's another weird name, right? Last week we talked about how names are really important. That's another one that's important. And uh, later this week, I'm filming a video to talk about all the names that we've been looking at next to this. But that's another one that should jump out at you, Ra'u'el. Anyway, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. 
Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the King of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. That ending there, God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them is so much better in Hebrew. Uh, English makes it wordy and makes it lose a little bit of its punch. But in the original Hebrew, it just says God saw and God knew. And I love that. God saw, God knew, and God's about to do something about it. This is how we end chapter two. But before we move on to chapter three, uh, I want you to notice what we see in these, in these two scenes of Moses. <sighs> I'm really sorry. I'm like totally out of breath. I like ran up here cause I was at the front of the building. <sighs> anyway, before we get to chapter two, I want you to see uh, some things about these two scenes of Moses that I just read in the first, uh, he sees one of his people being mistreated by an Egyptian and he steps in to do something about it. Maybe the wrong thing, but something. The next day he sees one of his people mistreating another one of his people and he steps in to do something about it. They resent him for getting involved uh, in this moment and in what happened the day before, which is going to be a recurring theme uh, kind of throughout Moses's life. People resenting him for stepping in on their behalf, but we're going to get to that later. So Moses freaks out that people must know that he killed an Egyptian. And it turns out that his fears are, are totally valid because Pharaoh does find out and immediately wants to put Moses to death. So he flees out to the wilderness to this place called Midian where immediately we have the scene of Moses again, seeing people being mistreated and stepping in to do something about it. Seven women come to get water uh, for them and their flock at this well where Moses has stopped. Shepherds come by and drive the women away. Apparently this was a really regular occurrence for them to deal with because their father's shocked when they come home so quickly. And it's all because Moses steps in. He sees people being mistreated and he does something about it. This is who Moses is. He's a defender. He's a defender of the vulnerable. He's someone who confronts bullies, someone who stands up to and confronts abusive power. And in any of the scenes that we looked at, no one asked him to do it. It's just what he does. Try to keep this in mind uh, through the rest of what we read tonight. Okay, so Moses flees. He runs into uh, Reuel's daughters, Reuel's daughters. That's how you pronounce that. I listened to the pronunciation so many times and it's just stuck in there. It's a weird word. Anyway, uh, he runs into um, their, his daughters. He cares for them. He marries one of them. He has a son. All this time, we're told that the Hebrew people are being more and more oppressed and they're crying out to God. God saw, God knew, and God's about to do something about it. That brings us to the beginning of chapter three, which says this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, that's really weird. I'll go and look and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. 
Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So here we are. This is the famous burning bush scene. And I don't know if you caught it, but right at the beginning, there's some really, there's a really weird thing that happens. It says that Moses is tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. But just in the last chapter, his father-in-law's name was Raoul. So what's going on there? Something. We don't have time to talk about it tonight, but that might be something for you to look into. What on earth is going on there? Uh, now there's, uh, there's this... There's not a consensus around what this burning bush is supposed to be. Is it just supposed to be something odd that is supposed to catch Moses's attention? Uh, is it supposed to be it, often in the old Testament? Anytime God shows up in the physical world, it's often through fire or through smoke. Um, that happens a lot in Genesis, a lot, uh, several other times throughout the new old Testament. So is this just an example of that? This could be a, a, like sort of a little preview of things that are going to come later in this book where uh, the created order, the way things naturally tend to work is suspended by God. It could be an image of Israel not being consumed by Egypt's oppression. We're not totally sure. It could be one of these things. It could be all of these things. But the point is, it's something supernatural that catches Moses's attention. Then Moses wants to go over and see it. He hears God call to him and he responds and moves closer. And God says, hang on, wait a minute. This is sacred ground. This is a holy place. You need to take your shoes off before you come any further. Holiness is a big theme that is going to become bigger and bigger throughout this book. The idea is that when God shows up, when God is present, things don't stay the same. Like things have to be done differently when God is around. And then God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And as soon as Moses hears this, he hides his face because he's scared to see God. Why wasn't Moses afraid before that? I think God saying this to him, that I am the God of your father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's telling Moses, I know who you really are. I know you're not an Egyptian. I know you're a Hebrew. And by the way, I've known all of these huge patriarchs throughout your people's history. And so Moses might've been curious about what was happening before, but now he knows that he is actually talking to God and he hides his face. God continues picking up in verse seven. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites out of Egypt. God is saying, I saw, I know, and I'm going to do something about it. And the thing that I'm going to do about it is send you Moses. Now, at this point, we get into this back and forth between God and Moses, where Moses tries over and over and over again to get out of this. And it's this interesting exchange where both God and Moses each say the first person pronoun, I or me, just about as many times as they possibly can. It's more pronounced in Hebrew, but you'll even catch it in the English. It's like a battle of the wills. God is saying over and over and over again, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to do. And each time Moses comes back and says, 
but I'm inadequate and I don't want to do that. So picking up in verse 12, God has just said, I'm going to send you Moses. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses says, listen, I'm not, I'm not worthy of this task. I'm a nobody. And also in case you forgot, the Egyptians want to kill me and the Hebrews hate me. So this is a really bad choice on your part, God. And God says, I will be with you. Don't worry. And as a sign, after you take the people out of Egypt, you'll come back to this very spot and you'll worship me on this mountain. Which, you know, if I'm Moses, I'm thinking that's not really a sign. (laughs) That's not really a reassuring sign. That's like something that happens after the fact that doesn't tell me anything about what has to happen before any of that for me to be back here. It doesn't really prove anything. It doesn't help me now. Picking back up in verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses asks asks a really practical question here. Who are you? (laughs) Hi, who's on the call? Who is this? Let's say I go and do this. Who am I supposed to say is the one who sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Or it could be translated, I will be what I will be. It's kind of a non-answer. But then God continues in verse 15 saying, uh, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is where God finally tells Moses his personal name. And we miss it in the English. Uh, This gets a little bit complicated, but I'll try to be concise. Try to hang with me. I think it's super interesting, but some of you might not. Anytime you see in scripture, the Lord, where the Lord is capitalized with a uppercase L and then uppercase ORD, but the ORD are like smaller. Anytime you see that, that's taking the place of the personal name for God. And our best guess for what that was is Yahweh. Let me explain what I mean by that. In ancient writing, vowels weren't used because it saved time and space and ink and native speakers could fill in the vowels in their brain without a problem. So this would have been written out Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, not in English, but that's what it transliterates to in English. Sometime after the exile, so a thousand years after the story is taking place, Uh, The Jews became to believe that this personal name for God was too holy to write out in its complete form and too holy to be to pronounce ever. So they would either substitute it, uh, substitute with it the word Adonai, which means lords, which is plural because of the royal we, or they would take the vowels from Adonai and add them to Yahweh, add them to YHWH. That way people knew that this was the personal name for God anytime they're reading it. And they would say Lord in its place when reading. So in this way, they never had to write out the name of God completely. And they never had to pronounce his personal name. So we don't actually know how this is supposed to be pronounced because we don't know what vowels are actually supposed to go in there. But again, most scholars say Yahweh. 
I have some thoughts about this name substitution thing that I hope to get to at some point. Uh, I think it's kind of unfortunate, but the point of what's going on here, anytime you see the Lord capitalized like that, it is God's personal name. And again, remember names are super important. The personal name for God relates back to the Hebrew uh, word um, for to be, which is like the most basic verb in any language. It's like one of the first things you learn when you're learning a new language. I am, you are, he or she is, they are, we are. And this is partly why God first answers Moses by saying, I am who I am. But the personal name for God as best we can understand means the existing one or the one who exists or the one who is which is fascinating and amazing. And we could do a whole series just on that name and its implications. And maybe we will someday. But the point here is that God has revealed himself to Moses in a very um, personal and intimate way by telling him his name. And that's all so that Moses can go and tell the Israelites that it is indeed God who has sent Moses. God continues talking to Moses in verse 16 here. He says, go, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, there it is, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and Hittites and all those other ites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. So God basically reiterates his promise to Moses. He's going to save his people and take them to this land of abundance. But he warns Moses that it's not going to be easy. Pharaoh's not going to let them go right away. But after God deals with Pharaoh, the people of Egypt will be so beat down that the Hebrew women will plunder them. Plundering is something that's usually done by warriors, by soldiers after conquering an opposing army, right? Not this time. Here is the women that are going to be doing the plundering simply by asking for anything that they want. The point here is just how defeated Egypt is going to be after God deals with them. Now, for some reason here, uh, someone put a chapter break right here. So the chapter three just ended, but we're in the middle of this conversation with God. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, God has just made this great promise and it's still not enough for Moses. So at the beginning of chapter four, Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This said the Lord is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. 
Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So finally, God gives Moses some real signs, some like really cool, crazy, supernatural things that he can do. This, these, all of these things, again, like the burning bush, allude to God ruling over creation and temporarily suspending the created order, bending it to his will. There's some specific symbolism about why snakes and staff turning into snakes and back, why blood and the Nile, uh, but all of those things are going to come up again. So we're going to get to that when we see them again. So God has just given Moses these incredible signs and still it's not enough for Moses. And he says in verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've been, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I haven't suddenly become eloquent in the last 30 seconds. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them their sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. So Moses says, listen, I'm not the guy for the job. I really don't do this whole public speaking thing. You're going to want someone more eloquent because this is going to be a big deal. And you can tell like God's kind of getting to the end of his rope. And he's like, dude, who invented mouths? Who invented speaking? Who invented hearing and language? Hello, me, God, I'll help you. You're going to be fine. It's still not good enough for Moses. He tries one last ditch effort to get out of this saying in verse 13, uh, but Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. He'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and we'll teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him but take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. So Moses finally says, look, I just don't want to do this. Just find someone else. At which point God gets angry, understandably, because he's like, dude, I'm giving, like, it's going to be fine. And God finally says, listen, your brother, Aaron, remember him? He's great at speaking. He can go with you. I'll tell you what to say. And instead of you saying it, you can just tell him what to say so he can say it. Okay, great. Now get going. And that's where we're going to stop the story for tonight. But there's two themes running through this little section of Exodus uh, that I want you to, uh, that I want us to consider for just a moment. And this won't take long. So if you've tuned out at this point, I understand. I know it's been a lot of, of Canaanites and Jebusites and fist fights and dog bites, but please give me your attention just for a few more minutes. The first thing I want us to notice is just how extremely patient and accommodating God is with Moses and, and his incessant insecurities. Moses keeps trying to get out of it. And God just keeps saying, I will be with you. I will help you. Don't worry. The other thing I want us to consider is just how much the picture of Moses in this burning bush scene contrasts with the scenes that we first looked at tonight. Moses goes from being someone who, who just instinctually steps in to defend the vulnerable and stands up to bullies to someone who's insecure and afraid to do so. Moses has sort of lost his mojo. And well, I mean, we're told that he's now a shepherd 
And a shepherd's entire job is protecting the vulnerable from violent threats. But it's safer because these aren't people that Moses is dealing with, it's animals. Before he was bold, foolishly bold. Now he's timid and reluctant. And so when God tells him, I'm sending you to stand up to Pharaoh and lead my people into freedom, Moses digs his heels in. He thinks through every possible bad outcome, which I personally can relate to. I do the same thing when I'm being pushed to do something that makes me feel insecure. Uh, But Moses seems particularly sensitive to rejection, especially by the Hebrew people. He says, they won't believe me. They won't listen to me. I can't speak. They're going to reject me. Please just find someone else which is understandable, especially when you think about uh, Moses' birth story and the way that his parents had to give him up to keep him alive. We don't really know how he interpreted that, how he saw that as he grew up and found out that his parents sent him down the river. And then also on top of that, he had that experience where the Hebrews resented and rejected him for trying to help. If you think about it, Moses was rejected by both sides of what he knew to be his family. He's rejected by his fellow Hebrews, his his blood family, but also the people that raised him, his adopted family, the Egyptians, just doesn't really belong with anyone. He definitely has some wounds that result in some profound insecurities in his adulthood. So God asks him to do this thing that is extremely risky and incredibly scary, something that pushes into all of his insecurities. But what's interesting to me is that what God is asking him to do also plays to all of his strengths. Moses is a natural leader. He's a natural defender. He's someone who naturally opposes abusive power. And though some 40 years have passed since he's been in Egypt, this whole time he's learned more and more about defending and leading through his experiences of being a shepherd, even if it's not directly with people. So in so many ways, Moses was made for this moment. In so many ways, his life experiences have prepared him for what God is asking him to do right now. Maybe you can relate to a moment like this. Maybe you're in the middle of one when it feels like, it, again, what I said earlier, when, and when everything seems to just come together. In so many ways, your life experiences have prepared you for this moment. And just as equally, your insecurities and wounds have destabilized you for this moment. Maybe you're facing a pivotal change. Uh, maybe you're or thinking about getting married or starting a family or ending a relationship or becoming a foster or an adoptive parent or starting a new job or, or changing careers completely or going back to school or building something new. Or maybe you're thinking about standing up to generational dysfunction and unhealth in your family or facing your own addictions or countless other pivotal moments that we face. I don't know what it is for you, but it's something risky and something scary and you have a lot to lose. And all you can think about is everything that might go wrong. And At the same time, part of you knows that you were made for this. And all you need to finally take that next step is to hear that still calm voice saying, I will be with you. Or maybe what Paul hears over a thousand years later from God, when God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Or maybe what Jesus says, don't worry. God knows what you need and is faithful. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Now, obviously, none of us are leading our country out of foreign oppressive rule. Not that I know of anyway, um, not yet. Uh, Even so, God has great things for you. 
things he's been preparing you for, things he created you for, things that your, your wounds and insecurities will try to thwart you from doing. Taking the risk, stepping out in bold faith is not easy. In fact, things often get more difficult. Moses's life, as we will see, is quite challenging with many, many, many roadblocks from this point on. So if comfort is your ultimate goal, ignore all of this. But if life lived with a deep sense of purpose and meaning is what you're after, then this is for you. I, I don't think that I'm the only one that needs to hear this. I think what many of us need to hear tonight is God whisper, I am with you. I will be with you. We don't have a burning bush to hear God's voice through. I don't have to tell you that. At least I've never seen anything like that. If you have, I would love to talk to you. But instead of a burning bush, we have these sacred stories from scripture and a holy community through which God speaks to us. We don't have a bush that is supernaturally unconsumed by fire, but we have these stories of scripture that have stood the test of time and still remain. We have this community that has, been cons- has not been consumed against all odds. Both are burning bushes in their own right. So let me be clear and maybe go out on a limb and say that God is saying to you, to me and to us, I am with you. I will be with you. Be brave, be bold. You were made for this. Let's go. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for um, this time together tonight. Thank you for these ancient stories that stand the test of time that still speak profound truths to us thousands of years later. God, thank you that you don't give up on us or our insecurities, even when we give up on ourselves. God, I pray that all of us would have that sense of hearing from you that you are with us. We love you, God. Amen.